0: Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, religious liberty and anti-discrimination laws. And Richard, in the life of this podcast, one of the issues that seems to come up probably a few times a year is the tension that we are increasingly seeing between advocates for gay or transgender rights and advocates for religious liberty, two groups that sort of increasingly perceive themselves as at odds with each other. We've had another flare-up of that recently, this time in Mississippi, where the courts have just smacked down the legislature. Why don't you just start by telling us about The law there and what's happened in this.
1: We'll start with the most recent case, and this has been a a debate which has been simmering uh, because the sort of the Danton in the early and mid 1990s uh, with the Religious Freedom Restoration Act is clearly very much frayed. And what happens is there have been a number of recent decisions which have indicated that a compelling state interest is, of course, the elimination of discrimination in the provision of essential services, of which contraception, on the one hand, is a critical issue, and also with respect to certain kinds of ceremonial activities dealing with same-sex marriage and so forth. And so the way the Religious Freedom Restoration Act works is if there's a substantial private interest... The only way you can override it is to show a compelling sub- state interest which you satisfy by the narrowest means. And so what happened is traditionally nobody regarded the anti-discrimination law as meeting the compelling state interest test. Uh, the doctrine developed in connection with economic activities in 1964 and there uh, since economic liberties are judged under a very low rational basis test, these things just sailed through traditionally. Uh, But the accommodation on this is now broken, and so the folks in Mississippi basically came to the conclusion that if you looked at a number of the developments elsewhere throughout the United States, uh, the compelling state interest test would be satisfied and religious liberties would therefore be stifled on a whole variety of issues. So what they did is not repeal the Religious Freedom Restoration Act in Mississippi, uh, but what they did is they added to it a series of other protections which were given with respect to people who had traditional beliefs, either for religious or moral reasons, with respect to a same-sex marriage, B, sexual relationships outside of marriage, and C, the whole transgender issue about whether or not one's biological birth markers are the ones that have to be decisive for all purposes. And when they put this in a kind of categorical form, uh, the thing got attacked um, in court by a large coalition of civil liberties groups. They drew a judge named Carlton W. Reeves, who's a clear Democrat, and what he did is he sided with them in saying that the kinds of activities that you're engaged in here are not entitled to protection. And in fact, he really went very far. He said that even as a matter of the equal protection clause, these things would not be uh, protected because there's no rational basis at all why anybody would refuse to give services on these situations, which is a really very much of an aggressive position. And then he also struck down all the religious defenses, saying, in effect, that this is a kind of impermissible coercion that the state has to stop. This was a preliminary injunction issued about 10 minutes or less before the law was supposed to take effect. There is now an effort to try to get um, a preliminary injunction against its enforcement of him, that is to reverse the preliminary injunction, uh, and that will not be heard in the appellate court probably for another month or so. Uh, So in the meantime, the law is in limbo.
0: Okay, so let's dive into – there's several things that you raised there, and I want to start with this one. You used several times in that explanation this phrase compelling state interest, which all of these legal protections of religious liberty, going back to the federal RIFRA a few decades ago and and the state versions – give the government some leeway to override your conscience rights if it's in the service of that, of that compelling state interest. And as you mentioned, it's kind of become a bit of a moving target. When the federal law was passed in the 90s, as you said in your Hoover column that was just published on this topic, there was a clearer understanding at the time of what a compelling state interest meant. Can you explain how it was interpreted then and why it's gotten more slippery
1: in the decades since? Sure. The term did not begin only in connection with religion a lot of it began in connection with freedom of speech and what happens is a compelling state interest is essentially one of the kinds of catastrophes of human origin or natural origins that normally displace ordinary social interactions so there's a compelling state interest to suspend the rights to property when there are natural disasters that require the police to go on somebody's land Uh, you can restrict speech in order to prevent a riot from taking place you can prevent speech from taking place if it's going to release uh, confidential information by the government related to the war effort and so forth so it is relatively narrowly defined to these classes of catastrophes and misfortunes Um, when you give that particular direction it's quite clear that nothing associated with the provision of religious services is going to fall within that particular case, that is you plan a wedding several weeks in advance or months in advance and you want to get a photographer or you wish to get get a minister or or, or in fact uh, a caterer, well, you've got lots of choices, lots of times, no compelling state interest. So under the traditional definitions, you would never have had the Mississippi law. But there have been a number of noticeable cases. There's been a recent decision in California. There was one in Colorado. There was one in New Mexico in which the anti-discrimination laws themselves were thought to be a compelling state interest. Uh, uh, This was one of the contentions associated with the Hobby Lobby case, you'll recall. And Justice Alito, he ducked the question of whether or not the religious issue um, was a compelling whether there was, whether the elimination of discrimination in connection with religious liberties was a compelling state interest by finding that the means chosen were not the narrowest there. So you're looking at this stuff, he's ducking the issue, a bunch of lower court judges are putting it into place, so you think your structure is a little bit rickety, and so what you do is, with respect to a narrow class of events, you want to make the prohibition absolute, which makes it all the more difficult to... Defended against a judge who actually thinks that there's no interest whatsoever in engaging in religious discrimination. So they'll put the extreme position. There are some people who believe that anybody who engages in religious preferences while participating in a market has no constitutional protection whatsoever. And there are other people who believe that the protection ought to be absolute. There are a lot of intermediate positions between all and none. And it's just very difficult at this particular point in time to figure out which of these will ultimately prevail.
0: So Richard, you mentioned that the judge in Mississippi said that this law violated the Equal Protection Clause. He also said that it violated the Establishment Clause under the First Amendment, which is a take that I know you disagree with. Why don't you, for listeners who may not be familiar with the intricacies of it, sort of walk us through the basics of the Establishment Clause and why you think the judge got it wrong here?
1: Well, the Establishment Clause works relatively easy in a libertarian world where you essentially allow people general freedom of association. And what it means, in effect, is that you establish a church when you give it certain kinds of preferences over all other churches. And the original establishment was, quite simply, uh, setting up an official church. And there were official churches in states like Massachusetts and Virginia until about the 1830s. Uh, When the churches become abolished, the Establishment Clause does not disappear. Now the argument is if you give any preference to a religious group over a non-religious group or one religious group over another, that preference itself counts as an establishment. So if you have a general law in which everybody is free to associate in competitive markets with whomever they want and religious organizations take advantage of that law, they're just doing what ordinary people will do. If, on the other hand, you now have a general anti-discrimination norm that applies to ordinary people, and then what you do is you exempt the religious organizations from this, you could make the argument that that particular exemption is going to count as an establishment. And so you can see what the real dilemma is. On the one hand, if you respect the religious claims, uh, then they're going to challenge it as an establishment. And if you don't, they're going to challenge it on the other side as an abridgment to the free exercise clause. What the Supreme Court has done in this particular area is not follow the judge down below, but sensing the kind of difficulty here, has tended to say when the two claims are in real conflict with one another, uh, the state has a certain degree of discretion to decide which of them it's going to honor and to what extent. And in my view, this then gets... A correct approach because what you're talking about is accommodation and this was of course exactly the issue that was raised with respect to the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Uh, What you say in effect is yes we know that these are huge advances in the state but the state has to make accommodations. What drove this whole thing off base, and we have never recovered from it, has been, I regard, the catastrophic decision that the late Justice Scalia did in Smith against the Employment Board. And what he held in that particular case was that any general law, neutral on its face will be constitutional against a religion challenge, even if it has a massively disparate impact on religious groups. So if you take it quite literally, if you're in the military, uh, the army can require a Jewish person or a Muslim person to eat pork because it could require that of everybody else. And then you just go through all of religious life and you realize that virtually everything that the religion does is in some sense an exception to the general rules, whether you're talking about prayers, whether you're talking about skull caps, whether you're talking about hours of rest, religious holidays, and they're all essentially, they can be wiped out. So once you did that, you then got the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, and the consensus was that these accommodations were legitimate. And the real shift in mood in the last 20 years on the part of the American left is they just reject the entire accommodation stuff, and they basically want to say to people, if you wish to work in the public space in any way, shape, or form, and open up a business, either you take everybody or we shut you down. And so this means, for an effect, that the photographers have to do things against conscience and so forth. I regard the coercion side as much more important than the establishment side. And the reason I do so, I've said in the article, and I say it every time I get a chance, uh, what the religious people are asking is to remain in business like everybody else. They're willing to take any reputational hit that they get from people who don't like the way in which they behave, but they can open up their doors and then they'll make whatever accommodations they can to people with whom they disagree. So I don't know of anybody of a religious background who won't sell an ordinary cake um, to a gay couple uh, for whatever purposes they need it, but they don't want to be in the wedding cake business. So it's a very narrow exemption. On the other side, if you try to figure out what the dislocation is, the person who can't get the wedding case or the wedding photographer uh, from a religiously minded person has thousands, hundreds, dozens of places to which he can go. And so the issue is, do you put somebody out of business for honoring conscience, or do you tell somebody else, make a second phone call and find someone else? Now, note the irony in all of this is that the only obligations are placed upon the institution. If you're a gay person, and you look at somebody who's willing to serve you, and say, I will not serve this person, to this person because he's an evangelical Christian, uh, the establishment can't come back and say, look, you have to treat me like you treat everybody else. So you get this fatal asymmetry of complete choice on the customer side, and then you get these really heavy sanctions on the opposite side. Uh, My own view is that the moment you put anti-discrimination laws into competitive markets, you're risking these kinds of problems, which is why it is that I've always taken the position, completely unfashionable and totally defensible, and that uh, anti-discrimination laws are essentially a counterweight uh, for the monopoly practices of public utilities and common carriers, and if you confine it to that area, most of these problems will disappear.
0: One of the fears in many religious communities is that what begins in commercial forums will end up spreading.  … … to more explicitly religious activity. There, there are, for instance, many people who fear that the logical end game here is compelling churches to conduct gay marriage ceremonies or you have houses of worship worrying that eventually they'll be called discriminatory and that will be used as the angle to threaten their tax-exempt status. And by the way, some of the more radical voices on the other side will, will tell you they're fine with that. How high are the legal barriers to things like that happening down the road?
1: Well, they're not very high. I mean, look, uh, the bad decision on the books from this, which is widely praised, has to do with Bob Jones University. And what happened was that the university essentially announced that it would not allow interracial couples to come there. They could have all black or all white. I think it's a profoundly silly restriction. And what happened is they lost their tax exemption because they discriminated. What made this so Difficult is everybody agreed that in a non tax world, a religious organization, at least at that time, had this particular prerogative. So the correct analysis is when you impose a tax, you're not supposed to change the balance that exists between religious and non religious organizations. And so, whatever freedom you have in the one universe, the government can't do it by the selective imposition of a tax on one side and not on the other, or granting the exemption to one side and not the tax on the other. And in Indeed, many um, non-religious people do this because one of the really difficult questions was always a very simple question of whether or not if the government decides that it's going to distribute information to people – telling them about the dangers of abortion in an effort to stop it, do they have to give information on the other side so as to counteract it? And, you know, the Supreme Court in a five to four decision said, no, you don't have to basically, to both sides of the stories. And Justice Ginsburg and a lot of other people said, no, this is absolutely crazy. Um, if in fact people have a free choice to get or not to get an abortion, we don't want the government putting their finger on one side of the scale and keeping it off of the other. Well the same argument to pause with respect to the way in which these sort of religious organizations go, and one can see this all sorts of places. So, for example, in the recent abortion case, uh, Justice Breyer uh, came forward with the argument that you know that Texas restriction on where you could get abortion—if you cut beneath the surface—it was quite clear that this was a very heavy burden, and he struck it down under the Casey case. More recently, in the Ninth Circuit, the question was whether or not a, ph- a pharmacy had to supply emergency contraceptives to women. There was a huge amount of evidence in the record that nobody had ever been inconvenienced by a decision of a given pharmacy not to do it. And the Ninth Circuit said, sorry, they have to do this because we think in the abstract there's always the risk. So in the one case, what you do is you have a detailed factual inquiry um, in order to protect the rights to abortion. And what you do is you have a superficial inquiry in order to squash the religious liberties of given groups. My view is that whenever you're dealing with these tensions, you really want to have a close inquiry and if you had only one pharmacy in a state and it was the only place anyone could ever get emergency abortion care um, or contraceptive care, one would say maybe you have to keep it open Uh, but if in fact the issue is that critical, somebody else will come into that market and provide the services Uh, so I think in these particular cases, this sort of two-handed approach is extremely dangerous and when I wrote about the Obergefell decision some time ago, I said look, I'm a libertarian, I don't think the equal protection clause requires what they said it did because remember the ground was there's no rational argument against same-sex marriage to which the simple answer is any traditional practice widely spread by other people have always been held to meet the rational basis test until now but if there's no rationality whatsoever for this then anybody who discriminates against the same-sex couple is by definition going to be irrational and there was nothing done in the opinions which stopped the extension. Um, So the libertarian in me says, same-sex couples, God bless. If you want to have a polygamous marriage, be my guest as well. But now when you want to coerce outsiders to cooperate with you in one way, shape, or form, or another, I think that's wrong. And it was recently up there in the Little Sisters case. And the Supreme Court essentially did make the right decision when it was clear that when people were asked to essentially sign away and saying, I don't wish to provide this stuff, they were also authorizing uh, the government to sue their own insurance company and that that was complicity. So this area is very much in turmoil, and it was in response to that turmoil that the Mississippi Legislature, Acted. Now, they've been denounced. I'm sure I will be denounced. But if you actually look at the full picture, this is not a crazy man's statute. Oh, this is essentially a very difficult response to make to what is, after all, a very difficult situation.
0: So that leads us to the last question for today, the thematic one that sort of overhangs everything we've been discussing. There are an awful lot of Americans who consider tolerance – to be one of the core values of American life, but as you've laid out for us today, you have widely varying definitions of what that actually means. Some people like you interpreting it in a much more laissez-faire way and others thinking that it in a lot of cases requires at least a measure of compulsion… How hopeful are you that that divide can be bridged?
1: Well, I'm getting more pessimistic about it because it seems to me that the cleavage is much broader. Um, We've only seen it get larger in the last 25 years, and there's now this sort of theoretical – abstract structure taking place under the First Amendment and elsewhere in which uh, coercion is now defined as a refusal to deal, and that's exactly what you have in all these cases. This is a very old move. It was actually made most explicitly 90 years ago by a man named Robert Lee Hale in what I regard as one of the most dangerous articles ever written because he says every time in competition you don't want to deal with a potential buyer or seller, you're engaged in coercion, which means coercion instead of being a rare phenomenon in business, you know, putting a gun to somebody's head is essentially a routine feature of every business that you ever see. So if you give these broad definitions and you give them intellectual respectability, I'm not at all sure that you're going to see a Supreme Court that's going to be sufficiently attentive to this, particularly if it switches over and becomes, as seems to me quite likely, uh, to be a basically a five four liberal block. And my definition of tolerance is I think pretty clear. There are many things that I disapprove of and I will be tolerant of them not because I like them, because I think other people are entitled to do things that I find offensive. That was a traditional kind of First Amendment value associated with the flag burning cases and so forth. But it's quite clear now if you want to go into business and that level of tolerance may not be given unto people, at which point all religious people will be forced to a terrible choice of either giving up their livelihoods on the one hand or essentially deciding to do something against conscience. This strikes me as being totally senseless, not because I'm a man of deep religious beliefs, but because I'm trying to respect the beliefs of other groups, which frankly I don't agree with, but nonetheless believe that they're entitled to run their own lives and their own organizations
0: in their own way. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at hoover.org, and you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Senek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.